Hello and welcome to the Centric Cities podcast from The Centric Lab. Some of this material will be familiar with listeners to the Conscious Cities podcast, where it was previously hosted. However, we decided to bring things in-house to further our intended direction with it. Centric are all about enhancing user experience in the built environment. And integral to this is mapping out ecosystems and looking for the friction and tension points that exist within. Well, that's what exactly this podcast aims to explore by interviewing professionals working at the coalface of the businesses helping design, build, manage, and dream of the cities of tomorrow. My name is Josh, and I'll be your host. In episode 10, I'm delighted to have Diana Borner on the pod to discuss her work as an architect with a specialism in designing for children, which has led her to be working on the Mayor's London Design Advocacy Board. Children have increasingly complex lives in cities. The youthful yearn for exploration and expression is being met with cities that are hectic, dangerous, ever-changing, and quite frankly, not really designed for them. So let's talk a little bit more about this with Dinah. Dinah, welcome to Cities Podcast. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. Excellent. Uh, I was wondering whether you could give uh, the audience and listeners a bit of an explanation and an introduction to who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing today. Sure. Well, um, I'm an architect um, in the traditional sense of the word, and I run a practice in Hackney in East London with my uh, business partner called Levisa. Um, I also um, teach and have been teaching for about 10 years, which is quite common for architects. Um, How I got to be doing this work that we're going to talk about today um, is through sort of several routes, if you like. One is... um, About 10 years ago, I did a master's at UCL in urban regeneration and planning. Um, And I was also building a house in the South Downs outside London, where it was quite technical. We were using rammed chalk from the ground, um, sort of lifting the ground up, if you like, um, and rebuilding it um, as a sort of long, soft, kind of concrete-looking wall. And sort of strangely enough, these two things, in a way, occupy the kind of outer edges of, of thinking about architecture in and and big and spaces um and we'd actually well I'd actually um got planning permission through appeal and that had been a kind of uh challenge if you like to um writing the the narrative of the of the building and understanding the planning system and so I was um leaving behind a practice that I'd been working in for since I was a teenager, basically. So I needed to sort of have somewhere to go, and that's the way that my practice work took off. Um, about six years ago, I became involved with Playing Out, which is this um, movement started in Bristol where we shut the streets for children to play outside. And I went to an event at City Hall, um, and I bumped into an old friend, Maisie Rowe, who's a landscape architect and had been running Heather Witt Studios and... Um, had uh, um, come out of that relationship and she's a really interesting thinker and we were at this event and we were talking about play streets and we we very much felt that it was a built environment issue but that nobody else was considering this and so we set off on this course to um, start to look at um, what the facts were behind it and whether there was something to be found out about a link between where the children were playing out, um, which seemed quite anecdotal, um, and whether there was a link between that and kind of design and layout of spaces. So that's that's how I got to that point <laughs> where I am now. Excellent. So I'm going to go straight for the jugular in this one. Um, so where did it all go wrong in designing for children? Um, I think um, we were doing quite well, probably, um, in the kind of post-war period and I I say this because my great uncle was an architect and he worked in the housing department at the LCC and in fact he used to say to me where did it all go wrong in terms of housing um, before he died sort of you know kind of around the early years of this century Um, because I think what they were doing in municipal housing was they were thinking about um, different ways um, of designing for different family types, albeit at that time in the 60s and 70s, you know, things have changed since then. But we conversations we had were things like um, they, you know, he couldn't bear the idea of families and children, for example, being in tower blocks. And, that, you know, the, the, these thoughts were 
very active um, amongst lots of architects in in those sort of um, 60s and 70s. And that, that that's why I think you see quite a lot of mixed um, types in um, estate design. So you get the maisonettes and you get the sort of low rise and then you get the medium rise and the high rise. And the idea was that people would sort of move around. They would, you know, when their families got older, they would change their house and you know move into a flat but that didn't that doesn't happen you know what what they worked out was that people don't behave like that and um in fact I think we're still making this silly argument that old people are going to be able to somehow vacate all their big homes and we're going to solve the housing crisis in that way so I think what went wrong was we stopped building housing we we got rid of all our municipal architecture departments and all that thinking went out the window and um, we're back there now and we've got a lot of ground to make up and we're making some of the same mistakes that we made and we're making some new ones Um, and the other problem is that we don't um, and we probably never did put children at the kind of heart of the way we think they don't vote they don't um, they don't buy things they don't buy houses certainly so it's hard to fit them into the system so those two reasons I think Excellent. With regards to the point on the expected people to move perhaps around the estate, do you feel that in early planning, perhaps the psychology that, uh, through the sort of 50s, 60s and 70s, there was trying to be too predictive, too related to, well, people will do this. Is this a stigma that is, uh, you know, that we're making up for now? Does it still exist in some, in some shape and form in sort of town planning at all? Yeah, and that's a really interesting question because I think for me, um, my education, my architectural education started in the late 80s and early 90s um, and there was very much a backlash against the sort of modern movement which was we are not going to be telling people we're not doing any social engineering anymore it's it's you know we're in the we're in the postmodern era um it's all about uh, you know anything goes it's all about the choice agenda and so on and um you know that that we 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 certainly weren't building any social housing any interesting social housing if we if we were doing anything at all and so um I think uh, there has been to a certain extent, and you can see it politically, that the state is realising that it needs to somehow bring back housing into its um, remit in the same way that education and health may be. And that is an uncomfortable fit, I think, for a lot of people. Um, And it goes back to sort of home ownership and stuff. And certainly this idea that people would move around a lot, I think, kind of was fitted well with this idea that housing didn't really belong to you it belonged to us and that's gone I think you know your house is your castle is being mm-hmm. very much the kind of <laughs> the way we see things now but there's um I'm, I'm not always sold that more houses will solve the, the housing crisis uh, it's not an original view uh, either that just because there is demand for more houses, and yes, there is a population increase, equally there is almost a dispersal of family units. People are breaking up and living alone more at a younger age. Mm. So the argument of, well, okay, housing becomes a priority for, for the national agenda, but surely we have to be slightly smarter in how we approach the development of new housing. So certainly in cities, when we're looking at, uh, first of all, a clamour towards wanting density Mm. and the need for density to actually balance that with what is actually fitting to people and users and from a more natural environment. Uh, From your experience, looking at how, you know, how is that being managed in the the circles that you you run in, you work with, uh, the idea of how do we understand the type of housing that's needed in certain areas and how that you know who's perhaps doing some more progressive work who what are the policy changes that are perhaps need to be looked at more to encourage more dynamic development of housing rather than let's just build loads more housing at mid-rise and let's all live in mansion blocks yeah (laughs) yeah that's one of that's one person's great idea isn't it um I think there's 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 a lot there's a lot in that um a lot of answers in that question um and raise more questions um Lots of thoughts there. So Rotterdam is often used as an example of a child-friendly city. Um, And Rotterdam did something because 
they had a very different set of problems than we have in London. They actually had families, the kind of white flight, as we would call it, back in the sort of 1980s, where families were moving out of Rotterdam, the middle classes were moving out of Rotterdam, and they needed to make it family-friendly. They needed to get the middle classes back in. So it was a kind of deliberate gentrification, and it worked. Now, we don't have those same problems um, in London. We have, um, a, you know, we have a, a pretty overcrowded city and we have lots of people staying and we have the middle classes being priced out. So that's a different set of problems. And you're right, densities are rising and I don't, you know, um, I don't particularly know enough about that to challenge where they, they should and shouldn't go. But certainly um, conversations are being had at City Hall where... I'm a mayor's design advocate and also advising to a certain extent the planning committee about um, what's suitable housing for children or families and what level should they be on, as in what floor should they be on. And I mean, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know if there are simple answers about how we do this, but I do think that when it comes to childhood, there is probably... Um, a real need for children to have plenty of space. Um, and that doesn't just mean kind of any amount. So, for example, the sort of, you know, the slab block in the big green empty space doesn't really work very well in terms of kind of social play use. Um, but it does mean that as that space becomes more and more constrained, there will be, you know, conflict and contested use. It, it's just natural, isn't it, as we kind of pile up on top of each other. And I think for children they will, well, probably are feeling the brunt of it more than most. I think it's fascinating. I had a, um, like a, a Twitter conversation with someone, as you do always, as you have more <laughs> conversations there. So, um, and, you know, he put up a, a great photo uh, from his childhood. Admittedly, I think the gentleman's in his, in his 60s and he was, he was showing his, um, you know, pictures from his childhood of people just children hanging on to street lamps mm. and jumping on top of uh of trash cans and he was like just imagine trying to live a life doing this now in london or or any major city it's just the fact that we're based in london that we're we're bringing this up yeah but um you know the, is there something that you're seeing that fun is almost being taken away uh from uh, from childhood and just saying just run across you know parkour that you know the massive movement that happens for very physically fit adults really is nothing that we you know something we just did as children just yeah. running around jumping and bouncing off things you know it, did you find that it's almost being taken away from us as more and more cities are getting built and, and to, on top of and more bureaucracy around maybe i think i hear that a lot and um i am um, one of my favorite answers to the you know it's all about screens and um you know, fear of strangers and all of that is that I don't know because I'm an architect and I, I want to be able to design the built environment better, but we're not going to turn back the clock. And I think central heating probably plays quite a big part in the reason that we don't run, run around outside anymore because um, it was really cold in the old days when we didn't have central heating. <laughs> and, you know, going outside and playing with your friends was one way to get around that particular problem. Um, and when none of us are suggesting that we should get rid of central heating. So, I mean, I think, I think um, uh, there is the, the, the reason that we started this project or this, this work, if you like, was because there was just so much anecdote about how the good old days were and how no one was playing out anymore. And, um, in fact, I was with um, the Policy Studies Institute who we're doing some work with at the moment in, on a project in Hackney today, and we were talking about how their work about children's independent mobility is, being, is regularly cited. And I said, what is it that they cite on such a regular basis? And he said... It's the numbers of children walking home from school, or rather the age in which children walk home from school by themselves. And I said, so none of your recommendations, none of your bigger findings, just that fact. It's like this kind of negative, miserable fact about how the world's <laughs> gone to the dogs. And actually, uh, we I've also been uh, met some... These two great guys, I keep... Um, promoting them in in Wrexham in Wales um who come at this whole thing from a completely positive angle and I think it's a, the way to do it which is actually do you know what there are kids playing out 
you just don't you just might not realize it yourself and we can't base policy on your whoever we're talking to your mm. own personal experience on on your own we need to know more and there are children playing out in some places quite a lot it's just very very varied um and so i go back to this idea that if we don't design for it it's a hell of a lot harder to make it happen so i can't really stop the development of you know social media i can't stop central heating i don't want to stop central heating um (laughs) but um i can try and design the built environment better so that children can somehow regain some of the freedom um or or rather that freedom is 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 better promoted because i think that's something that we need to design for whether or not we've lost it or not we may have done in some places but um we need to be thinking about it when we design for it i think cool i like the um analogy you brought to central heating is almost an, an unintended consequence of a, of a of a beneficial element i think this happens all over you know cars bought, bought great movement an unintended consequence was a sprawl that affects um people who don't have a car um so on, on the idea of almost uh, central heating in a very perverse way uh, there there are lots of studies there is lots of rhetoric and ideas that actually um quality of life for children in cities is decreasing. Um, it's quite a debated idea. I want to know what your opinion on that is. So um, do you mean sort of obesity and mental health, that kind of thing, or do you just mean in general? I, I think that's an integral factor. I think uh, the outcome of something such as uh, obesity is a response to the amount of space afforded to you and the culture around which you can move and be in being mobile. So I, I think that fits part into the question of the quality of life, uh, often of children in cities. I think we're going to focus on cities. Uh, we have to narrow the conversation slightly. Mm. Um, I appreciate that all over the country there are, there are difficulties for play, but particularly in cities it mm. becomes more challenging. So I, I see something as obesity as, as a, um, a causality. Uh, of a, a lower quality of life offered to children in cities. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's extremely complex, isn't it? Um, and um, the reason I said, do you mean obesity and, and mental health, is because, again, it's really hard, I think, and and I was thinking about this yesterday, how we we hook onto agendas don't we and 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 kind of initiatives um and they're often kind of sort of single issues and they can actually be quite kind of subjectively driven i'm not suggesting that obesity isn't linked to lack of exercise because it's clearly <laughs> been evidence that that's the case but um a, a lot there is a lot of you know kind of push on getting children out there to kind of tackle obesity and 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 I'm I'm always reluctant to do that and to to you know in fact Maisie Maisie Rowe who I mentioned earlier would say that she'd say why why do we think we're responsible for obesity when we talk about play um I think I hope that it might help because it's obviously a a huge epidemic um I think that um actually there might be some some the fun idea um in fact i I did a a talk with a friend of mine who's a sociologist who's written a book on fun and we talked about and actually there's a bit of a difference between fun and play maybe fun is an outcome from play i don't know he's the expert but um when you ask adults to to tell you their favorite memory of playing out as a child the the what what you watch their faces because it's quite incredible what happens the smile comes across their face that's pretty you know um revealing and what they tell you and you can do this at a conference it's quite a nice one of those um you know uh, sort of quick uh, feedback on your iphone kind of thing on your smartphone um they're often they're usually quite risky behavior it's usually stuff that they probably didn't share with their parents but it's 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 outside because that's the question i asked but um you can see, I think, that there's a link between that that memory and that experience, which must have contributed to their kind of sense of well-being because they loved it. And if, if well-being is about having a really 
amazing fun experience then yes I think we are probably lacking in that and I can I can see it in the way that I find my children are constrained through sort of education through structured times but we have to be really careful because for example there are studies in Germany that suggest that actually children who have the kind of middle classes with the most structured lives are the ones that play out the most in Germany because I think their parents care about that. So it's very, it's, we, we have to not fall back on kind of lazy assumptions, I think, which is that, you know, it's overstructured lives or, you know, central heating or whatever that's causing this. I'm not sure what it is that's, you know, but, but I do think there's a link between, you know, a kind of joy and happiness and well-being that could come about from that sort of freedom. So, yes, I think that's being constrained. Mm. I mean, the, yeah, there are multiple parameters of influence that uh, affect any situation. It's, it's one of the biggest difficulties within urban design, architecture and development and how we start to apply perhaps psychology, how we apply sort of cognitive sciences to understand uh, the person, understand how we can model these things out. And, you know, in, in user experience design and technology and things like the um, automobile in, uh, industry, it's been very simple. Well, not so simple, sorry. It's been far easier to control and look for outputs and how you might, uh, you know, use your hand to change a gear on a gear shift or mm. how quickly and easy it is to flick your wrist to be able to turn the, uh, you know, the wind, uh, the, what are they called? Um, windscreen wipers on when it's raining or when you're on a computer, how far you may want to sort of scroll to the right to click down on a menu. You know, it's, it's a very binary or closed relationship. But when it comes to the built environment, there are so many in, influencing factors yes. uh, that are changing uh, behavior yeah. that are going through. And I think it, it's a question of, uh, you know, you brought up the idea of at a conference, ask, um, ask a lot of adults their favorite memory. What do you think will happen in, in 20 years' time? Yeah. Do, you, do you think we'll still get the same dynamic where people go, oh, I, I, had, I had a great time? Or the, you know, the, the memories they'll pick up will be very different. Like we'll actually see a change in, in perception of what that memory was. Maybe. Um, we, did, we asked the children that we're working with in um, de Beauvoir Primary School at the moment on a project we're doing in Hackney um, last week. So just to set some context, last week it snowed a lot in London, didn't it? And that's a really unusual um, sort of uh, experience and change, significant change in landscape. And uh, uh, the colleagues that I was working with, I was doing a different exercise alongside them and they came back and said that we asked them about their memories and most of them just talked about the snow this morning. <laughs> they got, they, surely they've got longer memory span than that and I said well it might have been the very best moment of their lives I mean it, it might not have been but snow is incredible as an experience for a child it's um and actually I think what the, the part of the reason I brought that up is because it it, it, it gave them freedoms that they didn't naturally have the cars slowed down and we haven't talked much about cars but cars are as we know factually probably the single biggest threat to their you know to their lives out on the streets um because it's certainly not um strangers it's it's uh, it's you know kind of being knocked over by a car is is very dangerous i, th um, I think you've better done a, a precursor to my next question <laughs> which was about you know of all these sort of city qualities and i say quality something you know to do with noise air or you know exercise and, and pollution things like that what's the most concerning impact you're noticing i mean is it you know car, is cars the beginning for you for the, the for the trend that you're noticing on how it's impacting children's lives like it... yeah yeah and actually what's really interesting is that where we saw the play going on was in the estates and these estates are not laid out with streets and pavements and roads and they've also i think it's safe to say got lower car ownership um, and so actually there's a lot of space around and in between um, and the play does go on and it goes on and weirdly enough it goes on in and around the cars quite often um, the parked cars um, but when you come out onto the streets you've got a different a kind of different urban form and it's much more in a way it's much more binary it's like you know it's the pavement or the road and that's it um, and there's an awful lot of um, work being done on healthy streets my concern with that, which I've 
you know raised with tfl is that you know again children don't it's not just about movement for children play is not about getting from a to b it's 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 about um moving around in safe loops as rob weeway discovered in the 90s and has um written a lot about um and i think uh i try to um distinguish between moving vehicles and parked cars because actually parked cars threaten space and when you start parking cars which i tell developers and local authorities on a regular basis we've got a problem with controlled parking zones this is quite boring but most of them don't seem to realize this controlled parking zones are well um uh controlled if you like um but private land has a different set of laws associated with it. And there's the um, ironically named Right to Freedom Act, I think it was 2010, if I'm right. That was um, one of the earliest bits of legislation that the coalition government brought in, which to the delight of... I'm not going to say motorists, I'm going to say a certain band of motorists, (laughs) if you like... um, meant that and if you google this act you'll just get pages and pages of people telling each other that you don't have to pay the fines when you get um the ticket the invoice as it is on your windscreen so people's behavior on private land in their cars immediately shifts and if you want to walk around the city around london or anywhere else you'll see it go from a street that's adopted as in it's owned by the council and you'll see the usual council signs about parking and walk into a unadopted street that's not a gated community i'm mm-hmm, talking about mm-hmm. what you, you probably don't notice you're doing it and watch how within a, a meter or so car drivers behavior or um, car parking behavior shifts and people think they can do what they like in terms of parking their car and that has an immediate impact on 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 the human beings that are not in the car that are trying to get about and enjoy the world it's a Um, very unpredictable element to to, you know as a child if we if we try and think for them or even for us you know I'm, i'm a cyclist in london and so i have to try and work on uh, predicted behaviours of motorists as they try to navigate the roads and not get killed by someone. Basically. Yes. And so I'm sure for a child, and this must be some feedback that you get, but when you go to these perhaps private-based roads, that the behaviour, you have no idea whether someone's going to park correctly or speed off at any moment. I mean, this must be something that you're getting back... Is it, are you getting it from children? No, you can just see it. And no. so what... Um, speeding, I don't know, because it's it's that's a police issue, as I would imagine, but parking is um controlled but cannot be controlled in the same way on privately owned land and it's it's not so much we're getting stuck into a a particular little um bit of detail but it's um developers don't necessarily um or sorry local authorities don't necessarily want to adopt the streets because it becomes a cost for them so they'll quite often within a large-scale development leave the streets to be managed by the landowner either the developer or whoever they sell it on to. And, you know, they need to they need to design their streets to adoptable standards. So everything it looks the same, but the council doesn't own it. And therefore, um, bizarrely, the Freedom Act has Im- infringed on children's freedom to be able to enjoy the space in such a way as that they they would be they would expect to, which is that to be able to walk down a pavement safely without meeting a parked car and have to walk down the road, you know. Um, And this is just a really simple bit of legislation that seems to have, um, you know, disproportionately impacted on children. And so that's, you know, the car is, I think I said this earlier, um, you know, it's like our our kind of gun law in the UK. We seem to feel like (laughs) we've got the right... (laughs) to own and behave with our vehicles in the, in which way we please um and i think we we need to we need to um we need to we need to readdress that i think i think it, it's yeah it's certainly becoming a more and more well covered story i mean um patricia brown who is on the podcast who i think you know as well uh, has talked about you know we are really we are uh, recurling we are um redesigning our cities coming back from a car orientated world mm. um peter murray the head of uh, new London architecture 
recently uh, tweeted out um, that they're at peak at rush hour at peak times there are more cyclists on the road than there are cars and you start to look at okay well look there are more cycle lanes and I, I think that's fair and I think TfL have been improving dramatic transport for London if anyone's there, um, improving the facilities available but it all, all of a sudden gives mm. you a slightly different perception on how we look at ownership of roads i mean roads were effectively started for horse and carriage mm. uh, it just happened to be that automobiles took over so we have you know the right to who owns the roads and mm. there is a you know there is a fair entitlement for vehicle based drivers to be on the roads but there it is not the sole purpose of of, of their rights mm. and i am mm. um, i was wondering whether you have any uh, experience of what what children think of cars what what they think you know do they think do they, when they think of them do they think of it's dangerous do they think of it's so smelly it's always so noisy when someone beeps their horn you know what, what like, are there any stories or anecdotes or, or just a general uh, mood that you get from from children about cars in particular um well we do ask them about cars um but um it's really interesting when you start asking people, not just children, but you start asking people about the world around them. And, I mean, this project that we're doing at the moment is deliberately taking observational data and um, testing that against, um, in this case, children's perception of the same spaces that they may or may not know because these kids happen to be quite widely dispersed for, for various reasons. So they don't all come from the same space that we're, spaces we're looking at. But one of the early questions that we asked them, and these are in year five, so these children are 10, nine and 10 years old, which is quite an interesting age where they're starting to get out and about by themselves these days. That tends to be when the start of this happens. Um, they see the biggest threats as strangers, and you say, is that it, really? Is that the reason you're not kind of feeling safe outside by yourself? Yeah, that's pretty much it. It's strangers, it's kidnappers. Um, and, you know, when you prompt them mentioning cars, no, they're, they're OK, you know. And it's interesting where that's coming from because a lot of them... So half and half, probably, I would say, at that age, are out and about by themselves. And half of them, and I know this from experience, they're with their parents and they're not really paying attention. So, um, I mean, like, I don't like to go back on anecdote, but it was quite amusing when my daughter first went to secondary school and she worked out that, that, that I think there was something about... She hadn't quite figured out that the direction of travel on the road meant that the bus going one way was on that side of the road and would therefore lead her towards the school. Uh, it was it was so bizarre how this bit of information and this mapping of the, the city just was not in her brain at all. And it kind of quite quickly f fitted in, but it's worrying that that didn't happen until she needed to go to secondary school by herself and get on the bus because before that she could walk. And the, what the cars were doing was she wasn't obviously aware of it they were kind of traveling around on the road I mean that's quite a detail but I I think they're thinking about them less than we probably think they are if that makes sense and do you think that's because they're they're shielded they are you know you, you talked about children being uh, led around an area by an adult or they might already be in the back of a car or, you know, they're less playing by themselves, uh, which we earlier debated, that because there's less need to focus directly on their environment, they're becoming a far more passive passenger rather than an active passenger. Possibly, although I'm just going to make a guess here, I think it's because they're not on the road. So when we learn those things is when we get onto the road and usually it's when we get on our bike. <laughs> so you know when, when when we get on our bikes when we're kids then we really need to know what the cars are doing and that's when we learn it and whether and I think you know obviously there's lots of initiatives in London for getting kids cycling safely but and this is a lovely challenge I like to share with Sustrans which is listen it's great I'm a cyclist you know more safe cycle routes and and all the stuff on Twitter with a kind of ludicrous sort of 
um, you know, designs sometimes or the, you know, layouts that you see that are just sort of laughable where things don't work. And also the awful dangerous ones as well. But um, when you're learning to ride a bike and when you're playing on your bike, you don't cycle like a com- commuter. And how, how do we use the way children cycle about and the fun they have on their bikes and how do we build that into the built environment because and then sustrans go oh i hadn't thought of that (laughs) (laughs) because actually that lovely you know wending your way and weaving your way around and 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 as someone suggested at a conference i was at this week where can kids do wheelies it's like, yeah, where can kids do wheelies? Because there's signs up saying no wheelies in some park in his, in Camden. Really? Yeah. I love watching kids do wheelies. I just, I love the thrill of it. I think I'm never going to be able to do that, but I'm really enjoying watching you do a wheelie down the street and you're really enjoying it as well, I, aren't you? I can't bear the thought of what horrific accident I'd get myself into if I tried to do a wheelie <laughs> going down my street. I am, it's, yeah, I can't, I can't even think of that. I want to... Um, I want to ask them some more sort of business orientated questions. So obviously, you are a well-established architect. You uh, work with the mayor's. Uh, you're, you're a mayor's design advocate. That's, That's right. Yeah. So you know you're you're interacting with quite a high echelon of, of industry and business there. Um, something that's coming around more and more is how we rethink the value that the private development industry can bring to the built environment beyond the ability to move capital around and help people effectively buy uh, uh, their own pension fund. So one of these questions that comes around is the role of social impact contracts. And, uh, you know, this is, again, we're just going off your personal opinion, but it's an informed opinion on what is your view on sort of social impact contracts in private development regarding you know, the improvement of, you know, living and playing and health for children that, you know, should it be the responsibility of a private developer to say, well, look, I will be responsible for getting more children to play or I will be more responsible in my development for um, working on reducing pollution. Mm. As such, I want, you know, a, a, a contract to say, well, uh, more kids were playing, uh, less you know obesity levels went down, so NHS costs went down. I, you know my my relationship exists there. What, what's you know? Do you think that's a messy world, or do you think that's actually a sensible world we need to start thinking in the in the built environment? I think as an architect working uh, in you know which is essentially the private sector, um, as most of us have been doing for the last generation, we are well trained to sell. Um, ideas to developers that they can use and so um, I say to developers listen um, I know you want to do this Um, I know you want to create great schemes that people want to live in Um, we you just need to know how to do it and you also need to know that it's not going to cost you any money Hmm. Um, I like to think it's not going to cost any money. I like to think that good urbanism isn't a cost. It's just really thoughtful design. And I think design has become this outcome rather than this process. You know, design design has got this sort of silly association with a kind of frilliness, in, you know, in its very worst sense of the word which is a kind of quality that we can't really afford it's not design is a process of really hard thinking about trying to bring together very complex situations and make them work in the best possible way and I'm working on a scheme which is a big um big development in Harrow which happens to be for Harrow Council but they could equally be a private developer it doesn't make any difference they've got to operate in the same way and It was delightful to be asked sort of by Harrow, but also by the architects that I'm working, that are are designing the scheme, um, to advise on the kind of play strategy. Um, I think they were feeling a bit like they weren't kind of meeting the targets. And actually what I was presented with was a really good scheme, a really good bit of urbanism. And when you unpicked it all, it worked clearly really well for children without anybody actually thinking about that from these practices Sergis and Bates and Stephen Taylor and also Eliza Morrison they had designed in 
the sort of delight, but also the kind of clear sight lines, the um, a simple sort of connections between spaces, um, uh, a variety of spaces and quite a lot of shared space. And I said, listen, you've got to move away from play being kind of compartmentalised into sort of small areas and then meeting the capacity requirements and sort of making the policy um, uh, and meeting the policy if you like, and actually see this as being um, the public realm, good public realm design. Um, and, um, you know, when that happens, it feels great because that that could, like I said, that could have been a private developer. And I know that I hear many, you know, British Land and Argent and other developers, and I know that there are even small, there's a small development company that I've been talking to um, a while ago, Joseph Holmes, who, you know, they say we we want to attract families and we're not attracting families to our development. So how can we do that? You know, so it, it makes sense for them. They want um, development that, that people will want to live in. And I think there's funny things that we're not doing right. Like, so, for example, I've done a piece of work with a photographer um, and set, uh, sort of set her the challenge of taking photographs of children playing in a particular, um, actually, 40-year-old estate, but it's it's actually quite, you know, it's quite um, it's quite a middle-class estate these days, um, just to, sh- to show what it is that we want to buy into, because actually what developers often sell are these um, quite sort of staged um, lifestyle you know, you're buying this lifestyle when you buy this flat. Here's your glass of wine and your gorgeous girlfriend, straight boyfriend, and or your child in your hand. And actually, I challenged her to take photographs of that amazing freedom that you can have. And that taps back into that memory idea, that nostalgia for that moment. And then when you speak to people, and it's right across the board, developers, housing associations, that at least 25% of them will tell you, I live in a place like that and it's absolutely brilliant. I love where I live. Everybody gets on with each other. The kids play out all the time. And, and everyone... T- and they say, so, you, so you know it's happening and you know they want to do it. They're just... Nobody quite knows what the ingredients are because we haven't thought about it enough. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to really codify it, spell it out, but we're up against some difficult challenges. For example, the densifying that you talked about earlier, the courtyard developments are increasingly, if not um, universally, gated. And the first question I ask is, do not put gates on this development. You need mm. The kids need to be able to get about, meet their friends, go up and down the stairs 20 times a day. That's how you live as a kid. And you get this nervousness, but, well, hang on, what about antisocial behaviour? What about strangers kind of wandering in? And you think, God, I just back away from mm. this idea. You know, you need to have some faith in human nature. But there's just as many studies that talk about, uh, you know, aggressive architecture uh, begets aggressive behaviour mm. as well. Putting spikes, putting activity like that. It, it encourages the, the almost the desire to go, well, I shouldn't be there. Oh, maybe I should. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think we need more evidence like that and more positive evidence mm. that says, look, these guys are taking the gate that aren't putting the gates in. Um, they just want to hear that. They want to hear somebody else done this before I have because development is all about reducing risk. And they, they, they want to reduce the risk before they put the spade in the ground, basically. So who's, whose role is it there? Is it the role of the developer to learn more, to, to look elsewhere? Is it the role of the architect to be, to come a lot more evidence-based? Uh, it exists, evidence-based design exists. Uh, architects do work on a lifetime of evidence um, manifesting itself in the next uh, project that they work on. Is it the role of the, the planning authorities uh, to start collecting this information, to start organising? Because we almost have a sense of inertia that there's... And it isn't one person's responsibility, I get that, but who, who from your opinion, probably needs to up their game and needs to... You know, is it that we actually need, uh, you know, central government to this, or is local government, or actually the private development industry needs to up their game? You know, who, who do you, which two groups do you think need to be speaking more effectively? 
right now on this kind of idea? There's a kind of easy answer to that. It's not, um, it's not the children's sector, which is where you'd think it would sit normally. I, I don't, uh, what I mean is it's not education. It's not where we focus our children's services. Um, and I have this conversation a lot with various different players in this in this area. And there's not many players, let's be honest. But um, the play sector is very well versed on on this side of things, but they're quite marginalised um, and they haven't got much of a connection with the built environment. Um, I we're working on this question in Hackney because part of this study is about how do we make change, how do we affect change within local government and then beyond, if you like. So there's a sort of pilot exploratory study a kind of catalyst if you like for um how could this roll out at different levels um i think it has to happen collectively and people have to um uh, a counselor who's um involved in this project suggested that it might be something like branding you know we all need to walk around like they do in leeds with we're a child-friendly city and that's what they do in the council in leeds and every council representative has that badge on doesn't matter what they're talking about that day the badge is sitting on their lapel or whatever reminding everybody that they're a child-friendly city and so it needs to be kind of um embedded in what we do sort of in the backs of our minds really um and i think we'll bring the developers on board with us because they they want to know about it and and i think the policy makers too but it's policies ever so hard to drill down into as i know having tried to respond to the london plan <laughs> by trying to make it a bit longer which is kind of gonna be the wrong thing to do right <laughs> <laughs> i've not read it my colleague has they were exhausted by the end of yeah. it i've been to debates on it and still no one has any idea how it's going to be uh materialized it's, yeah. It's, yeah sometimes the problem it, it, around policy that it, it it loves policy itself um we, we always come towards the end of these um interviews talking about technology because the first part of these interviews is actually always to ask people what's going on in, in, in your role. You know, we want this show to be revelatory so that someone who isn't aware of the dynamics of anyone who's working in urban planning, architecture, blockchain technologies, prop tech, what's going on, to learn so they don't just pick up false narratives and they can perhaps hear personal stories, they might find new truths that they can, sorry, not necessarily truth but new ideas that they can work with it might spark an, a piece of interest but you know everyone keeps talking about the the rate of technology um, and how it's changing our dynamic with uh, the built environment so uh, I guess a question to you and it doesn't have to necessarily be about play it's not about um, a, a single piece of technology but is, is there is there something that you're really looking forward to um, maturing a little bit more in the built environment and you know this this can be anything from autonomous vehicles that some people love all the way through to um, you know exoskeletons on buildings that soak up pollution for example you know technology is not just about uh, electronics it's about advancing materials that we use so what, what's the kind of one thing that you think I really want that to mature because I know that can make such a difference to children's or people's lives in cities I find this question really difficult um, because um, I think there's a sense of what I'm looking at is all about a kind of physical experience. And, you know, part of the reason it's difficult is because there's this balance, isn't there, that's talked about between, um, you know, people spending too much time on screens and not spending and kids particularly not spending enough time outside and sometimes people start to suggest that you know there are kind of gaming things that can go on outside that kind of reconnect you with the built environment that there are apps that you can use that can find your local this that and the other um and I wonder whether for me I think it's about this loss of freedom and I don't think technology always um, constrains freedom. I think sometimes it gives you chances and it rebalances the world in your favour. Um, I mean, for me as a woman and as a, as a, as a mother, to be able to be a kind of um, effective and sort of, you know, sort of out there architect... 
um, technology's been brilliant because it means that I can send very kind of uh, professional looking emails from my iPhone when I'm, you know, in between <laughs> some, you know, really complicated sort of journey of various different things that I'm juggling at the same time. And it's allowed me to p- create an office and a, and a, and a reputation and sort of growing a reputation, if you like, which is in a sense has given me, um, perhaps that's a freedom. I'm not sure, but it's given me a chance to, um, uh, to to be more of an equal with people who previously would have been established and I couldn't have, you know, um, competed with them. So I think, in a way, what technology needs to do is to rebalance some of those inequalities. Um, and, and it needs to be tasked with that. Um, so wh- whether it's, you know, dare I suggest... You know, um, you know, cars that can't travel any faster than 20 miles an hour or 10 miles an hour or whatever we decide on that piece of road, whatever you put your foot down to do whatever speed, that's just not going to happen. That suggests to me a a technological advance that obviously curtails one person's freedom over somebody else's, but we can make decisions about that and we can, um, you know, we can phase light changes and we can do things that, um, give back freedom to other people and we can work out what those are. But that's part of a conversation, I think. And that needs a kind of contract, a social contract that isn't just about ideas. It's a, it's a complex bit of technological thinking um, or complex thinking and technology that comes out of it. And I think I worry that technology is often just about ideas-driven, single, um, marketable things. Excellent. Uh, Dinah, the study that you mentioned before that you were doing in Hackney, when's that due to be released? How will people be able to find out about it? Because it sounded fascinating. We're going to publish in um, the summer, so by July, um, and with the University of Westminster, and we will put it on our website, and we will be sending it out to whoever wants to read it as well. And what's the website for people to... So our practice website is ZCD architects.co.uk excellent and if someone wanted to get in touch with you directly what's the best way to they can, say hello they can email um through the website or they can find me on twitter if they like because i think that's a really good way of exactly as you said sharing all these ideas and building your networks so my twitter handle is dbornat excellent Dinah, thank you very much for coming on the cities podcast thank you very much it's been a pleasure Thank you to Diana for her time and imparting some wisdom in how to create moments of magic for children in cities. Got to say my favourite anecdote was the unintended consequence of central heating changing the dynamic of how kids play. I love that it's never the most obvious thing that explains the change and that's what I love about interviewing people on this show. So thanks again for listening. We're on iTunes, so if you do have the time, please do leave us a review. It always helps. If you want to stay in touch with The Centric Lab, you can drop us an email to say hi about this show to podcast at thecentriclab.com. You can find us on Twitter at The Centric Lab. And obviously, we've got a newsletter on the website itself where you can stay signed up to what we're up to in the future. All the best. Bye.